Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Kemp Little, for this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. If I just go back, actually, to this slide. So the title of this session is uh, Getting the Best from the Cloud. Now, I ought to just declare, as you already know, I work for Cisco. So I'm not about to preach to you the Cisco position. Uh, it was a great internal struggle, but I know you're all fiercely independently minded, and I thought it would just be a complete waste of time. So I'm not, I'm not going to say anything too controversial, I sincerely hope, but hopefully this, you'll find this an ed more of an educational session. Um, this session could equally have been titled Different Perspectives, because everybody has, in my, uh, in, in my opinion, a different perspective as to the importance of the cloud, whether it's possible to get anything good from the cloud. In the short time that I've been supporting Cisco's data center strategy, I myself have been in front of many clients and customers, all who have expressed different views about the reality of the cloud or whether or not it's hype. Some of them view the cloud or cloud computing with serene acceptance. They're extremely excited by the possibility of uh, procuring almost infinite IT resources on tap. Some of them view the cloud with great trepidation and fear, likening it to a, to a mushroom cloud. And some of them are just plainly annoyed, if you like, that it's uh, just a costly distraction. Uh, something like the, uh, the volcanic ash cloud that descended um, from, from the skies more recently. Uh, the definition of a cloud, I don't know how many of you came across a report published by McKinsey, the global strategy consultants last year. Uh, in the opening pages, they found that there were as many as 22 published definitions of cloud. I'm not about to add to that weight with another, another definition. He said, what I'm going to do is maybe just draw out some of the characteristics of cloud. Uh, firstly, the illusion of almost infinite IT resources. That's a key characteristic of cloud. Uh, that are available on demand without delay and that the resources as well as being able to be provisioned on demand can also be released on demand. Research has shown that in some uh, enterprises it can take anything up to 40 days to procure a simple server. Now with uh, Google or Amazon services it's possible to procure uh, a server within 40 minutes. Another characteristic of the cloud, uh, cloud computing is that users of the cloud can buy uh, the resources at a very granular level. So it is possible to buy 1,000 hours of a server for the same cost as 1,000 servers for one hour. These are the characteristics of, of cloud computing. The implementations of cloud today tend to be uh, either those which I've already mentioned, so for example, the services that are, that are available today offered either by Google or by Amazon, you can see these, um, but also private enterprises are building their own private clouds. So just to distinguish between a private cloud, which is a dedicated data center, a series of data centers, 
which provides services to a single enterprise, it's a private cloud, uh, separate from a public cloud, which is the same services being made available to the general public. So there is a, as one might expect in the IT arena, there is a brand new taxonomy uh, rising up to describe everything to do with cloud computing. So over the next few minutes, I propose just to cover a couple of things. Uh, trends, the challenges which uh, our, our clients, your clients, uh, are no doubt facing. And uh, it, go, it does go against the grain uh, for me to make any predictions. And indeed, I included this picture in here more to remind me of the dangers of making any predictions. This it purports to be a photograph of a home computer uh, in 1954. Um, they were predicting how a home computer might look 50 years hence in 2004, and I'm, I'm delighted to say that they don't look like that, otherwise I would need a much bigger house than the one I do have. Um, I only found out relatively recently, actually, this is a hoax photograph, and that is not a prediction of what a home computer would look like at all. It's actually the inside of a submarine uh, dressed up to look like a home computer. Having said that, um, let's just talk about trends. This is a, 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 a roadmap that I'm sure you're all familiar with if you, if you like me, have worked in the IT industry for some time. Um, so the cloud, cloud computing is seen here at the top right as being the, the next step in uh, the, the evolution of information technology. Now, what has enabled it? Well, we could, we could dispute this, for I'm sure, for, 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 for hours. But in, in, in my view, what has enabled the coming of age of the cloud, and there have been many attempts, actually, to bring cloud to the masses. It once upon a time was known as grid computing, utility computing. Some of the very big computer companies in the past, HP, IBM, have all declared that cloud computing is with us. But the timing was a little premature, it's probably fair to say. We think, I think, personally, not of Cisco view, that the time has come. Now, what has enabled it? Well, a couple of uh, very important things have enabled it. First of all, the proliferation of some extremely large data centers. Over the last 10 years, Google, Microsoft, Amazon have invested billions of dollars building very large data centers in some very low-cost locations to fuel their own businesses. Google, the dial tone of the internet, that, that search capability is underpinned by many, multiple data centers, not all in, in, domestic, in the domestic United States. You hear and you can read a lot about the, uh, the search for new locations to put data centers. Iceland even has been put forward as a potential location because it has ready uh, natural resources of cooling water and cheap electricity. And data centers consume a lot of electricity. Uh, uh, another enabler of cloud has been the development of software, software <coughs> research and development now, where it's possible to, for one individual device, be it a computer, a server, to actually share a workload. Rather than being dedicated to performing one task, it's now possible to partition a server, like our PCs, our PCs are our servers, uh, to partition a server to um, handle multiple workloads. Now that type of capability really was confined to mainframes, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, but that software has now moved onto the server. 
We talk about virtual machines, VMs. And another enabler has been the, uh, not only the exponential growth in the internet, but also the incredible investment that service providers around the world have made in making the internet a much more robust network. It's still a public network, it's still not regulated, but it's still a much more robust business tool for businesses to share data over. What are the primary challenges facing our business clients? So this is the, the business context. None of this will come as a great surprise, I, I'm sure. But for the IT function, the IT department to remain relevant in today's increasingly challenging times, challenges facing CEOs, managing directors, pressures from competitors, globalization, some of the uh, points we talked about earlier but with outsourcing, so there's, there's a great push to conserve scarce capital, to save costs, but also <laughs> to become more agile and to bring new services or offerings to an enterprise's customers. Now that all hinges on the ability of the IT function to remain relevant and agile, which means they need to do more with less. And then we've also got, it's always been there, the management of risk. Depending very much upon the vertical or the industry in which the, the, the enterprise finds itself, the risk profile is very different. But generally speaking, all of our enterprises are, all of our customers, clients, find themselves in an environment where there is increasing risk, business risk, legal risk, commercial risk, financial risk. That's the business context. Also, this is the context, the phased evolution of the cloud. So this picture is attempting to illustrate the situation today. So we've got standalone clouds. We've got private clouds, enterprises that already have their own dedicated data centers. We've also got external clouds. These are clouds that are being provided by service providers or by the outsourcers. I'm even aware that some governments are seriously contemplating investing and building their own clouds. This is the situation today. We have challenges here, however, in this particular phase. We've got challenges of security, not so much physical security, but data security. Precious business information being shared, transported over an unregulated network, the internet, and being controlled and processed by a third party. We've got challenges around service levels, the quality. How can we be sure as buyers of cloud services or as suppliers of cloud services that a, a, an SLA or SLAs can be found and can be agreed upon and more importantly can be met? And then we've got issues of control. How can we be sure that uh, uh, the cloud provider that I know today, that I do my due diligence on, is going to remain in the same hands. Now, to all of us, I think you're probably thinking, well, none of these are particularly new issues, and I would agree with you. They're not new issues. They're the same issues that IT has um, confronted for the last 20 years. If you outsource, if you outsource uh, an application or a service to a third party, you have pretty much the same kind of challenges. But the next phase of the cloud, uh, cloud computing, is uh, a, 
a, a wholesale move to private clouds. Now, which coexist with public clouds. So this is a maturing in the, in the development of private clouds, more and more enterprises developing and using private clouds. But wanting the choice, uh, an IT uh, program manager may have the choice between using the internal cloud resources or maybe procuring from the public cloud. Now most IT managers that I have met would probably want to resist that freedom they would want to resist the individual user with an enterprise just going and buying a bit of public cloud service. They'd want to be able to control it. Hence, this concept of federation. So there has to be some control over when an enterprise goes into the public cloud. So you build in more intelligence into the enterprise to make the good decisions about should I use private cloud resources or should I go outside to use public cloud. You also have issues of portability. It's, it's fine talking about clouds, but fundamentally, really, what are we talking about? Well, a cloud is nothing more than um, an abstraction of the IT resources from the actual service. There is still hardware humming in a room that needs to be air-conditioned running applications. And those applications, if you're an enterprise, you'll want to be sure that you can port or transfer or move those applications from one cloud provider to another. At the moment, there aren't any standards. There's no real agreement on interoperability between cloud providers. And then, of course, you've got the market. What will, will there be a market in cloud services? Who will regulate that market? And finally, you get to inter-cloud, which is when all clouds can talk to each other. I suggest that's probably a long time from where we are now. To make a little bit of sense uh, of, of, of these challenges to... Cisco's customers, we try to take them down this evolutionary path where you start on the left with the consolidation of your existing data center assets, which is doing more with less. Then you can virtualize your assets using the clever software that I referred to. So instead of having physical servers, you can split them into virtual machines. Greater autom autom automation, providing cloud as a utility, which really means very much like you or I buy electricity or gas today. And then, and again it's a long way out, there's, a, th th there's the prospect of there actually being a market when all of these clouds can talk to each other. This is what our customers told us about the challenges that they see. So, on the right hand side, our customers are telling us that they're attracted by the lower costs and the greater flexibility that cloud offers them, but they still have concerns about security, SLAs, or interoperability. Again, I suggest there's no great surprises there. This is a Cisco slide. Uh, naturally, we would like to think that by having the network as a platform, it mitigates those three risks and moves them from the red to the green. And now I think we're going to talk about some cloud issues. Thanks, Richard. Um, I'm Mike Conradi, as, as you heard from Richard, from the other Richard. Uh, as a lawyer, sort of specialising in this area, of course, one of the things that we need to focus on uh, when you're talking about contracts is risks. And uh, uh, this, Richard, you, you mentioned how, uh, in many ways, 
the, the risks are the same as if you're dealing with any other outsourcing. We'll talk about why that's true and also how there are some differences in the risks. Um, before we do that, I thought uh, it would be helpful to see how cloud issues and cloud risks are already in the news. The first slide here concerns a device called the Sidekick. Um, it's been in the news twice in the last few years in, in this kind of context, actually. Um, the, the slide you probably can't read, but I'll, I'll tell you the two stories. The, the first one was um, T-Mobile in the States had a fantastic idea to promote their fantastic new device, uh, the Sidekick. Um, that what was special about the Sidekick was that all of your data that you put on your phone, like all your phone numbers, all the photographs, everything else, was not stored on the phone. It was stored remotely in the cloud. And uh, they decided to pay celebrities to carry one of these in order to try and promote it. Uh, Paris Hilton was one such celebrity. Uh, you can imagine what's coming next. Um, uh, her, her account was hacked into, and all of the contents of it were published on the internet. So a bit of judicious Google searching. If you, if you haven't seen enough compromising pictures of Paris Hilton, you can find more by uh, finding it in the context of Sidekick. Um, uh, then more recently, this one was uh, just uh, less than a year ago. Um, uh, there was a problem after all of the personal data that was stored remotely got destroyed accidentally. Um, the, the particular thing to, to draw from this in, in this context is T-Mobile was a customer of, it was buying cloud services and all of their data was lost. Uh, so that is, was obviously extremely uh, embarrassing and very uh, damaging for their reputation. And in fact, the, the uh, Sidekick device has now been withdrawn. Uh, the next one, uh, Gmail. Uh, Gmail, I'm sure you're all familiar with, even if you don't use it. It's one of the most popular uh, online email uh, services. It's used by more than, this article says, 113 million people worldwide. It's probably more than that now. Again, this article's from last year. Uh, and uh, you would think, as cloud services go, remote storage of email is fairly simple. And you would think if any company could manage to handle it properly, it would be Google. Despite that, uh, Google had uh, a major outage in February when the entire service was down for several hours for all 113 million people. So uh, you know, there are some issues that even smart uh, switched on companies suffer from this. And uh, finally, a, a topic close to my heart, submarine cables. Um, uh, I could talk for hours just about submarine cables, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll combine myself for 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> You, you may not know that uh, almost all uh, internet traffic is carried by fiber optic cables that connect continents. And uh, these are, if you are moving your data and services onto the cloud, uh, especially if uh, the, the physical location where your information is stored is in another country, it's very likely that you'll be relying on infrastructure like this. And if it gets cut, uh, and this story is about a cut to a series of cables, uh, in the Mediterranean that happened beginning of last year, then you f may find that your access to them is significantly restricted. Uh, and that's obviously a problem. So there's no news like bad news, okay. um, as Mike has happily shown. Uh, despite that, apparently some people are taking cloud services up, remarkably. Um, given that they are, uh, for new entrants into this space and for the procurement teams that uh, are taking them there and the legal teams who are supporting those procurement teams, Often uh, they're coming from a background of outsourcing and they're taking that mindset and approach into their cloud sourcing of services. Um, and there are similarities between the two that I think give some credence to that approach. In both, uh, there is a procurement of services. Uh, in both, as been spoken at by Richard in our session and John earlier on, uh, there's a drive to efficiency, uh, whether that's through bringing in external expertise, 
whether that's through taking capital expense out of the business, uh, whether that's through getting rid of something that's primarily been an internal service and putting it outside the, the business. How that's being done, again, we see commonality. Um, in most outsourcings, there's usually a, a large degree of remote service provision. Uh, cloud sourcing is all about remote service provision. Uh, and because of that, I, I don't think it's unrealistic to see both as being complex enough relationships that require what we've termed grown-up service contracts. Uh, despite this commonality, um, as Mike's about to evidence, I think there's a degree of a distinction between the two that requires careful consideration. Right. So, some of the differences between, uh, on a legal side, between um, when you're dealing with an outsourcing contract and uh, when you're dealing with a cloud computing contract. I'll just run through these quite quickly. Uh, on an outsourcing, uh, you would typically expect, as we've heard from uh, the first session, uh, that you're dealing with a customised deal. It's, a, it's tailored specifically to the customer, uh, and it's, uh, by definition, it's something that uh, would previously have been carried out in-house. By contrast, in a typical cloud model, uh, many customers are receiving more or less the same service. It may be customizable, but everyone is sharing the same infrastructure, so you don't have the same, it's not tailored in the same way. Uh, the second row here is about uh, who's responsible for uh, delivery of the actual service. In an outsourcing model, you'd expect the supplier to take responsibility for the whole thing. By contrast, on the cloud, the customer is typically taking responsibility for ensuring it's got connections to the internet. Uh, and that, of course, has knock-on effects on things like service levels uh, if, you're, if that access gets cut. Uh, the third row here is talking about employment. You've heard from uh, David Williams in the previous session a bit about Tupi issues. Uh, in outsourcing, if there's a staff transfer, then that, that, or there may well be a staff transfer to which Tupi will apply, usually in a cloud model, uh, you wouldn't expect there to be uh, such a transfer. Um, but of course, we've heard there could be situations where you, you need to think about it nevertheless. Uh, the pricing and payment model could be much more complex in a traditional outsourcing. There's a number of different ways that pricing could work. Uh, we heard from John about that in the first session. Usually on a cloud model, of course, there are, you can have a, a number of different ways to pay, but usually it's simpler. Usually it's pay per use. Uh, the service development uh, will be customizable in an outsourcing. In other words, they, they'll, you'll, it's part of the first point, really. You'll be able to get a bespoke uh, technology improvement plan. You'll be able to decide in advance exactly how the technology is going to improve, how service levels will improve over time. In the cloud, uh, you, as a customer, you've got less ability to, to dictate that. You get the upgrades to the software along with everyone else when the software is upgraded by the supplier. So it's less customizable. Uh, in outsourcing, it's still the case that deals are usually longer uh, and they're usually more complex and they're usually higher value. Um, Whereas in a cloud model, uh, although I think it's changing as people get more comfortable with the whole concept of a cloud, uh, the deals are usually shorter and of lower value. I think the distinctions that Mike's drawn there between the two sort of models of sourcing have direct implications when you start coming to look at the terms that you're going to be taking the services under. Um, as a customer, if you come from kind of outsourcing perspective into a cloud sourcing environment, I suspect you'll have some fairly um, pre-established thoughts as to what kind of comfort you should be getting from the supplier when you take your services. Uh, I think in, in considering all of these, it's perhaps useful to keep the phrase software as a service in mind when we think about cloud. Um, quite a lot of the, the, the points that we're going to 
consider here twist on whether we're thinking about software or thinking about service. Um, as a customer, you may well come in uh, expecting that the supplier will be giving you some warranties around care and skill or scare and kill as I often mistype them um, and whether or not those will still apply. Um, uh, you know, that, that usually is seen alongside a kind of good industry practice requirement. Um, I think when we think about cloud sourcing, uh, a lot of the services that are being offered are so nascent that actually what is good industry practice? What are you getting in terms of comfort if you ask for that? Uh, is it worth asking for at all? Um, customers also quite often come to this situation with uh, a sense that the supplier will give them comfort that the service that's being cloud sourced will comply with their requirements. Again, in a kind of one-to-many, multi-tenanted environment, I'm not entirely sure that's realistic. Uh, the supplier is much more likely to be saying, this is what I offer, this is how it works, will you take it? It's almost a kind of enterprise software approach where the supplier will say that what I give you will operate in line with the documentation I give you with it, or perhaps, if you're lucky, um, will operate in line with the service level agreement that I give you. And that kind of mirrors through when we think about losses and heads of loss. Um, probably key in all of the cloud sourcing arena is who takes responsibility for loss of data. Um, two quite polar positions in this. The customer comes in saying, I'm sticking my data in your cloud machine thing. You should be responsible for it. And the supplier comes back saying, I don't know what you're sticking in there. I'm not going to be responsible for it. And this kind of levels out often in a place where the supplier says, all right, I'll take responsibility for it but it drops down to the liability limits. I'll only take responsibility up to the limit of my liability under the arrangements because I don't know what you're sticking in there. If, you're corp if it's your corporate crown jewels, that's your lookout, not mine. Um, that debate continues through, uh, again, traditional heads of loss that might be sought in you know, outsourcing arrangements. Anticipated savings or goodwill reputational damage. I can't think of too many cloud sourcing uh, suppliers who come to the marketplace expecting to provide those kind of benefits in terms of anticipated saving, or indeed who think that they are somehow supporting the reputation of their customer. It, it's a different mindset. Again, for people who are in regulated industries, uh, you know, who may face fines, uh, most cloud sourcing providers aren't coming to the marketplace offering something that takes away your compliance obligation. So as a customer, you may be having to shift your position. Liability limits. Well, you know, it, it, the typical outsourcing model of um, you know, this is a long-term deal, uh, I'm guaranteeing you revenue over a certain period of time, is probably a bit of an anathema in a cloud situation. The customer isn't burdened with upfront costs in terms of uh, hardware expense. Um, the supplier, as a result, doesn't think it should wear big uh, limitation of liability. And that, that debate sort of runs and runs in these agreements. And lastly, around law and jurisdiction, it sends a simple point, but in an outsourcing situation, you usually have a very clear understanding of where service is being provided from. In cloud, you may not have that understanding at all. And when you start to think about enforcing your rights, where is actually the service provision coming from if it's out there somewhere? Just a, a few uh, more legal issues to think about. Um, uh, one thing is on intellectual property rights. Uh, in any uh, situation where a customer is getting a supplier to create something or do some work, you might need to think about intellectual property and who owns the rights in that. One thing that's a bit special uh, or might be special about the cloud is, of course, that there's a particular um, type of intellectual property right, a database right, uh, and it may be that the cloud supplier will, if you don't say anything else in the contract, own database rights in the database that with, 
that is being created. So that's something that you might need to think about in some situations, um, and, and the contract would have to deal with that. Confidentiality is, uh, of course, as I mentioned, if the supplier is not responsible for the internet connection, and if you transmit important data unencrypted or poorly protected, then uh, you need to think, of course, about the consequence if there's a breach of confidence as a result. Uh, and uh, that, that will be different from the traditional outsourcing situation. Uh, and finally, on this slide, on indemnities, uh, the risk for the customer's point of view is, is as per any outsourcing, really. You would expect a set of indemnities. Uh, the, the most obvious one would be uh, on intellectual property rights, again, that if the supplier's service causes a third party to sue the customer for infringement of rights, they get an indemnity. That's, that's standard. Um, uh, what's a bit different is that the supplier uh, is actually taking a bit of a risk, or they may, be seeing, they may see it in their eyes as they're taking a risk. They are hosting your data. They've got no idea what the content of that data is, whether it's uh, defamatory, whether it's pornographic, uh, whatever it is. They may seek some indemnities from you as a customer uh, to cover the risk that they get, that they suffer some consequences as a result of the contents of your data. So if Mike always gets to talk about submarine cables, it seems I always get to talk about data protection. Um, data protection, obviously, in a cloud environment, uh, key. Um, when is it going to apply to any processing of personal data? Uh, actually, therefore, really likely to apply to the types of functions that are ordinarily put into a cloud source environment, HR, CRM, accounts. Um, here, the key principles of, of the Act, which are, are going to be applicable, are number seven around appropriate technical and organisational measures to stop unlawful processing, data getting lost, blah, blah, blah. And eight, um, in that data shouldn't be transferred out with the EEA uh, unless there's a, a, an adequate level of protection in the destination of the transfer. Um, these two are both very applicable when we think about cloud situations. Uh, suppliers will come to the table in a cloud situation believing themselves to be the data processor. So as a customer, you retain full responsibility for whatever is having, uh, sorry, whatever's happening with the, any personal data you put in. Consequently, contractually, you'll be looking to make sure that uh, principle seven is in there and that you have the necessary controls, as we'll see to the extent you can, um, over the supplier. In terms of where the data is stored, a tricky question in cloud situations. Um, sometimes you're working with one party who can tell you where their data centers are and you can draw, if you like, draw a circle around it you can contain the cloud, you know what's going on. Often you don't. Um, uh, this is particularly relevant, I think, when parties think about uh, jurisdictions that they, they had no con you know, conceptual uh, thought that on the way in that the information would be stored in. You find this um, uh, when people start to see lists of data centres, they, they become really nervous. Uh, Richard mentioned Iceland. Uh, I think there are a few more uh, perhaps exotic and interesting locations where data centres are based. Um, even taking somewhere where you would think you were comfortable, the US, uh, threats there around uh, is your data likely to be viewed through the Patriot Act if it's stored in the US? Um, you've got to make sure the party you're sending it to gives adequate protection. Is it safe harboured? And if not, uh, these are the, the sort of drivers that have led to EEA-based cloud solutions and amongst others, for example, Microsoft setting up wholly within EEA offerings to uh, address customer concern. Okay. Um, one other thing to think about uh, is whether there is any sector-specific regulation that could apply to you in your industry and specifically could apply to you when you are choosing to buy a cloud service. Uh, just listed a few examples here. Financial services is obviously uh, the, a very big 
uh, industry in terms of using these type of services. And there are specific rules for financial services in MIFID and CISC, which is the FSA's own source book, which require financial services institutions to think about risk and prudential management when they are conducting any outsourcing and certainly would apply in many situations to use of the cloud services. So you would need to think about what those rules say and make sure that you've covered everything that they require. Uh, similarly, US public companies have to worry about Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which has similar uh, requirements in it that, uh, to think about uh, risk and uh, prudential management. Uh, another industry that's, that uh, could be affected specifically is telecoms. Uh, there are specific rules in the telecoms industry to ensure the security and confidentiality of data, and in fact to notify customers of security breaches. Uh, so that's something that you'll need to think about uh, if relevant. Uh, and you'll be glad to know uh, that there are sector-specific rules in other industries like the nuclear industry. There is a set of statutory instruments that require nuclear institutions to keep their facilities secure. Uh, and uh, similarly, the aviation industry has other uh, regulatory instruments to, that require security and they could be relevant to uh, virtual security just as much as they may be relevant to physical security. So, and additionally, you, you've got some really uh, obscure areas that you cover, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, in addition to uh, sort of specific regulation, there are some sort of more standard commercial, um, I guess, commercial comforts that people would be looking for coming into these situations that are questionable when we start looking at cloud sourcing a little bit more closely. SLAs, um, we've already talked, uh, and Richard helpfully showed that um, he thinks there's comfort coming uh, from the network as a platform. Uh, generally, however, uh, I think you'll find providers in this area are reluctant to give SLAs, and this boils down to what can they actually give you comfort that they are in control of. Um, Mike showed us the example of submarine cables being ripped up, and I think 60% of internet connections in India failed. Um, you're not likely to find too many cloud providers backing that. Interestingly, Google on their, um, their premier application suite do give an SLA of 99, well, 199.9, uh, availability, but when you think about them as an organization, they now have the data centers, they obviously have the software products, and they now own the cable. They're starting to get to a position where they have a wraparound service, which takes them into a slightly different place. Less likely to get those SLAs from others who don't have that wraparound. In terms of security and disaster recovery, um, many organizations as customers come to the table with these providers, uh, if you like, trying to prescribe what they need to make sure they are safe and sometimes that's driven from the specific regulations that Mike suggested. But if you think about it, you're coming into a one-to-many environment. Um, it may be that what you're asking for simply won't work. It's more than likely that what you're asking for will require a level of change that the supplier is simply not willing or able to make. And lastly, if you do get there, I think where you're ending up is something that looks a lot more like Richard's private cloud, and you'll be paying for it. Um, audit is a similar requirement where you know, many organizations come to the table <laughs> thinking they'll be able to audit their cloud supplier and get comfort from that. But if you, again, think about how the cloud service actually works, what are you going to audit? The physical location of where your data may be stored, well, that could be many, many places simultaneously or any one place at any time. Um, if you think that perhaps it can be satisfied by having some kind of enhanced administrator <coughs> access to the service, so that you can see what's going on in the service. In the one-to-many sort of multiple tenant model, it's hugely unlikely that the supplier is going to be comfortable allowing anybody in to have that level of look. 
particularly because it's got contractual obligations to the other users of that platform. So again, asking for it and getting it, I think, are likely to be very different, um, very different drivers. Termination and exit is, is a final area where uh, it was mentioned earlier on in the outsourcing provisions in its, uh, it session. It's something that, again, is hugely important in a cloud environment. Uh, it, it can lead, I think there's a fear, to some kind of de facto lock-in where you can't get your data back, or at least you can't get it back in any way that you can use it, or at least you can't get it back in time when you want to use it. I think suppliers are taking this on board, and, and you will now find most suppliers will contractually agree to give data back, give access to it, um, not particularly quickly perhaps, and certainly maybe only in one format. Uh, but a lot of this, I think, from a customer side, leads you to a place where you, you might want to think about other solutions. You might want to be drawing down your own data and keeping it somewhere else from time to time so that you don't have that supplier inertia, so that you don't have the de facto lock-in. Uh, and interestingly, uh, perhaps an additional tool in, this, in the customer's um, armory, in the past uh, three or four months, we've yeah. had the, uh, the new NCC um, SAS escrow agreement uh, which is, it makes for interesting reading. Um, everyone, I'm sure, will be familiar with NCC and their, their standard escrow provisions, but they are now offering a escrow for customers um, who are using software as a service in the cloud. But what they're asking for there is that the supplier puts all of the code into uh, escrow with NCC, such that where the supplier to fail, the customer could establish their own cloud offering. Um, the reality of that, I'll leave to the room. Um, perhaps uh, more useful is that if you enter into this kind of arrangement or you can find a supplier who will, uh, there's an ongoing obligation on the supplier to download the customer's data uh, into uh, the escrow situation. Uh, and this doesn't require a trigger event, so customers can actually pull their data back from, from NCC. Um, again, quite why you'd want to do all of that as a customer, maybe when you could just store it yourself, I don't know. But it, it does give some degree of comfort as a kind of an ongoing backup. So uh, hopefully we've, we've pulled out some of the key issues that I think are facing customers as they come from an outsourcing environment towards a cloud sourcing environment. Um, I know that uh, Richard mentioned he had thoughts for the future and uh, I think we'll wrap up our session hearing those and hopefully at least the first of those might address some of the concerns that we just raised. Having said that I, I was going to resist the temptation to predict the future, I'm, I'm now not going to heed my own warning in classic kind of lawyer's sense. Um, imagine a world where buyer, a buyer of cloud services could at a glance compare two different cloud offerings. I mean, we've had this, um, this ability in the context of international sale of goods contracts now for 60, 70 years, INCO terms. For commercial lawyers, I mean, I'm a commercial lawyer, actually not an IT lawyer, I'm a commercial lawyer. I mean, I'm very familiar with XWorks and CIP, and these are the, these are the stuff of negotiations. You know, where does title and risk pass between the buyer and the seller? Why not have the same approach to cloud services? Now, I, I know we're talking about a service and not goods, so the, the concept of transfer of title doesn't quite work. But if you just dwell just a second on on really what's title all about. It's, it's the, the possession, the ownership, and the control of the chattel. So if you wanted to know uh, uh, how much ownership and control would you as the user, the buyer, have, how much flexibility would you have over the cloud 
um, service. How, how quickly could you change it if you wanted to change it? Or does it all happen in a black box? You know, you just don't know what goes on. Okay? Same with risk. Uh, we've talked about a number of risks. There's the, the transfer of data. Uh, whose risk is it? At what point does the data that's being transferred between the customer and the supplier, when does it become the supplier's risk? Is it the supplier's risk from the moment, from the node, sorry to use some, some jargon, but from the moment it leaves my workstation, is it now at the supplier's risk? That doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Because the supplier doesn't control the cabling into my, into my machine. But it, it rather depends. It, dep it depends very much on the infrastructure that one chooses to use to operate the cloud. So that's just, just one idea. Uh, I have to say that personally, I, I, don't, I don't quite buy the <coughs> long-term cloud contract approach. I think if, if that's the mindset, then cloud is doomed to failure. Cloud, to be successful, has, has got to become ubiquitous. Okay? We all just use it without thinking. Okay? Um, and we're a long way from d doing that for a number of reasons, technically, commercial, commercially as well. But if you think back to VPN, virtual private networks, the idea that a bank, any bank, my bank, NatWest, um, might start moving bank data over the internet. They might allow me to work from home, connecting to a public network, me a lawyer, sharing confidential information. The, the, the idea that they might allow that to happen 10 years ago was just not possible. It technically wasn't possible, and also enterprises were deeply uncomfortable about it. It happens now. It happens because of VPN. I can create a secure tunnel between my laptop at home and Cisco servers, and I can work securely using VPN. PayPal, you know, the idea that you might use a credit card to buy something from a, a U.S. catalog uh, to ship to your brother or sister in the, in the U.S., as I often do. I mean, the, the idea that I might spend £100 online and give somebody £100 of my money, is, I mean, I would never have done that 10 years ago. But, of course, now I do it using PayPal. The second, uh, the second point on here, the global market for trading surface cloud capacity. The, the thought that I've got here, actually, is the parallels with micro-generation. So those of you who have got your own little wind turbines, yep, solar panels, yep, that surplus energy that you're generating at home, you can sell back into the grid. Why couldn't I do that if I've got surplus capacity on my private cloud? Why couldn't I just sell my surplus capacity back into the marketplace? It's an interesting statistic that currently today, most data center servers are utilized, that's their kind of their, their usage as a percentage over the, uh, their lifetime is between 5 and 20%. Some servers only get used five hours out of every 100 hours. Why? Because the CEO, the CIO, the head of IT says, I have to build an IT infrastructure which is going to support peak demand on my business. I'm Tesco. Peak demand on my business occurs at Christmas time. That's when millions of people hit Cisco, the Tesco Direct website. I have to provision my IT resources to cope with that. But come January, February, March, I've built this huge infrastructure, but it's not being used. These servers are just purring along at 5, 6, 7% utilization. So those are just two thoughts that I'd like to leave you with, but as I say, don't take it from me. I mean, they're just, they, you could say they're the ravings of a, you know, of a mad, of a mad, passionate person about clouds. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, Never apologise for being passionate about IT in our company. That's fine. Um, we have a couple of moments now for any questions uh, on the session we just had. 
as uh, Paul mentioned at the end of his session, or sorry, David mentioned, we're also having a general Q&A at the end. So if you really want to sharpen your question to prod people with for then, um, do, do hold on to it. But do we have anything for now? I'll take that as a no. Um, we are uh, all three around through coffee and through the rest of the afternoon if you'd like to ask your questions privately. Otherwise, thank you all for sitting through our session. And uh, we're going to break now for coffee, returning to this room at uh, quarter to four. And coffee is served where we all started, in the mauve bar, the purple bar. <laughs> thank you very much.